So this is a work with Clara Cortina, which was a colleague of mine in the council before the crisis started and everybody started leaving the country. <laughs> so, but she's still in my presentation because she's still the co-author. So basically, um, well, just to give you a general idea of the size of the phenomenon we are going to talk about today, or the importance, the numerical relevance of this issue for in the Spanish context. So here you can see how the number of people that are foreign-born but has the Spanish nationality has increased over the last two years. Okay, so you see here it increased by more than 200,000 people that are quite likely to be foreigners that have recently naturalized here okay and um, but here in these numbers because this is for the population register we are including also some children born to old spanish immigrant or emigrants to france germany and so on so actually when we go to the uh, ministry of justice statistics to look actually for people who have acquired the Spanish nationality through residence in the country. The number since two, 1998 uh, has been uh, almost 900,000. So probably we are talking about a million of immigrants that recently, during the last two decades, uh, acquired the Spanish nationality when we exclude the descendants of our own migrants. Here you can see better how annually the number of uh, uh, citizenship granted because of residence in the country has increased over, over time. You see a first peak around 2008 and then definitely in 2010 was the peak. So more than 125,000 people got the Spanish citizenship that year. And since then, well, it reduced a bit, but that has remained quite at high level since then. So obviously these are absolute numbers and they are very much related to the size of huge inflows that we have been receiving basically since the late 90s, beginning of the 2000s. So something that I consider important in order to put Spain in the more international context is to see to what extent in relative terms our numbers of naturalizations are high or low. And this is quite surprising for many people at the beginning. So here we have a couple of countries for different periods, and this is the number of naturalization of people naturalized every year, considering the number of people with a legal residence permit in the country the year before. So as you can see, Spain is here. It's at the lower, lower end of the distribution. So even given the high numbers of people that were acquiring the nationality recently, even when we look at the green bars that are the ones for the most recent period, even after the, the crisis started, the, in relative terms, we are not giving nationality to so many people, considering the size of the foreign population we have in the country right now. So, and you can see also something that is a bit surprising is that there are huge variations both up and down in the rest of the countries over time, but Spain has remained quite stable over time. So about two people uh, out of every 100 legal residents that we had in Spain have been receiving the Spanish nationality through residence, not uh, by birth or by any other uh, procedure that is available in, in, the, in the legal system in Spain. And it doesn't matter that much what time, uh, what period of time you look at. 
So basically, this is just to give a bit of the context, to, to, to give an idea of how relevant this is, not only in numerical terms, but also from a policy point of view. Uh, basically, we can look at naturalization, and by naturalization here, I use nationality and citizenship uh, as synonymous, because in Spain is national, Spanish is nationality, so we kind of use it in, in the same sense, and uh, I will talk only about naturalization, so referring to people who got citizenship because of residence in the country for a certain period of time, okay? So, at the aggregated level, naturalization usually is viewed as one of the strongest indicators of integration in many cases. However, there is this discussion, depending on the citizenship regime that we are looking at, whether this is a marker of integration actually, of it is only a station to it. So it's only in the process and it is helping people to enhance actually the restructural integration and even probably uh, the identification of sociocultural integration as well. At the individual level, usually we look at this as a rational decision. So people are expected to naturalize whenever the benefits expected from this decision uh, are larger than the costs they have to face. And uh, what I, I'm going to do here is basically to look at the individual level, but uh, with the intention of being able of drawing some conclusions for the uh, aggregated or societal mm, policy level <coughs> somehow. So, when we consider naturalization a rational choice and we uh, look at the potential benefits and the potential costs, costs that uh, individuals can face when they are considering this possibility to apply for, for, for citizenship, we always talk about the political rights that only naturalized immigrants are able to, to, to be granted, the potential economic benefits of accessing jobs that before were restricting to you, or even to have access to some welfare benefits that in particular countries are restricted or only uh, citizens are eligible for them. And also, it has definitely a symbolic dimension. So, in some uh, contexts, and depending the, uh, let's say, the stereotype or the general uh, view that the receiving society has of your group, acquiring citizenship of the country of residence can give you some sort of status or mobility that other people uh, don't have access to. But. Something that is very important, it's probably what I'm going to pay more attention here, and it is the idea that is somehow organized in the paper, is the legal benefits that derives from uh, citizenship acquisition. First of all, you just don't need a residence permit anymore. And this for migrants, it's like heaven. Because you don't need, not only a visa, you don't need to renew periodically your permit to be in that country. You can go back and forth. You can, in some cases, also reunify your family members much quicker or with uh, much easier conditions, not always, but in many cases, than if you are simply a foreigner. And so this is usually what uh, we use to compare when we do cross-national comparisons of citizenship regimes. Uh, but here, as we will see later, what I'm going to do is to compare uh, different groups of migrants all within Spain that are uh, subjected to different citizenship regimes because of the particular uh, characteristics of our regime. 
So then we have the cost of uh, paying the fees or going through the bureaucratic uh, procedure that is usually quite slow, at least in Spain has been on average people had to wait more than two years to have an answer for the application. Uh, I was commenting before that in 2010 we had half a million applications there. The backlog was huge and the Ministry of Justice, after the uh, Conservative government uh, got into office, uh, started an emergency plan. So they kind of outsourced the, I mean, the checking of the requirements uh, in these applications. So it was the, I don't know if you have that figure, it's the registry of uh, property. So different, not the civil servants at the Ministry of Justice, but the people that are usually taking uh, notes of the different properties people have, they were asked by the Ministry to inform all these applications. So during the last two years, they have been done that, uh, doing that, and now the backlog is kind of over, but they did it in a very standardized way, so they were not actually paying attention to the, to the application by itself, but applying a very standard uh, rules and now a lot of uh, complaints and uh, appeals are being filed because for instance they were requiring for children requirements that are only applicable to adult people and so on so uh, for refugees they were asking for the criminal record so this kind of crazy stuff now but at least they are very happy that they got rid of the backlog so the problem is that so far even Theoretically, we know that there is this economic and uh, political and even disincentive. Mm, uh, we have results that are contradictory. So sometimes we find that naturalized people are more likely to apply for certain welfare benefits, but other times we don't find that results. Sometimes we find that uh, naturalized people vote more. Uh, some others uh, find that over time the cohorts are voting less and less, even, I mean, naturalized cohorts in comparison to the, the native or second generation native uh, in, in the US in this case. And then when we look at the integration indicators, uh, it's not that clear either. So we have a large variety of results and it's not that clear which is exactly the structure of incentives that uh, lead some people to apply for naturalization but not others. So what I'm going to do here is to look at, to look at these factors somehow, but not putting the emphasis on them, but rather to look at this, uh, to the possibility that uh, citizenship decisions are made not only as an individual decision, but as a family or couple decision. And it, this was basically Irena Blomkrat, but other people also uh, suggesting the possibility that there are some strategies at the family level that makes you, depending on the citizenship regime you are in, uh, to prefer, for instance, to apply. You apply for the citizenship in the country of residence, but your husband does not. So uh, your children can, can keep both, depending on how both the country of residence and the country of origin legal regimes interact. So there are many different possibilities there. Uh, and then I will look also at the immigration regimes within the same country, as I said before. So to what extent to be, uh, 
to have a different citizenship regime within the same country make people react differently to different incentives for, for the, uh, let's put it mm, in a different way. To what extent potential determinants of the decision to naturalize vary depending on the citizenship re in regime that applies to you. And the, for this, Spain is quite a, an ideal case because we have a very particular system that I will explain in a bit. So basically, we lack of systematic analysis of the variation of the potential legal benefits beyond the case of cross-national comparison. There are, so in that case, I, I, was I was telling Evelyn before that I like it very much the, the paper he, he, she wrote with Cookmans because at least they took only one group, ethnic group or national group in different contexts. So there at least, but usually the analysis we have is many different groups from origin in the same country, assuming that the legal benefits that they can derive from naturalization are equal for all of them. So what I, I want to do is to compare basically different groups with. And then I would like to interact this with uh, the potential benefits that derive from naturalization considering that people uh, depart from different immigration status. So the migration regime that applies for instance to EU citizens and non-EU citizens are completely different. If you pull together both of them, you are assuming that the legal benefits from naturalization are the same for foreigners, but they are not, because some of them have already acquired some of the benefits that potentially derive from naturalization, like a free movement or not being uh, asked a visa or even having access to uh, most jobs in the country in equal fit with the natives. So. Why I think that Spanish is an ideal context for this? Basically because we have sharp legal asymmetries. From the point of view of the migration regime, we have the EU and the non-EU people, like in any other EU country right now. So EU people have a strong legal status, they have enjoyed free movement, they have equal work conditions and residence conditions. Of course, at some point they can be asked some sort of uh, formalities, especially after the three months and they, they don't have a job and recently this has become much more visible, but I mean, still the comparison with the new people is quite sharp. They have to, to periodically renew the residence permit and they have, especially in the case of Spain, where the duration of most permits is only one year or two, during the first uh, renewal period, uh, they have a high risk of falling back in, into irregularity because the renewal of the residence permit is very much linked to the work permit. So especially in conditions like now, when they don't find a job or they are not able to stand their contract, they are risked to, lo to lose the residence permit quite easily. On the other hand, we have two big naturalization regimes. Even the general rule for residence is like uh, foreigners have to, to have been living in Spain for 10 years legally and continuously to be eligible to apply for citizenship, which is a quite harsh requirement that it's only uh, worse to put it somehow in Switzerland and just a few more countries. Uh, we have a huge exception, which is to Latin Americans, Philippines, Portuguese, and Sephardis, I don't know how Sephardics, Jewish, uh, only two years of legal residence are required. So, not for the Jews, only for the Sephardis. No, <laughs> sorry. 
<laughs> so then, apart from that, we also have naturalization for people who married a uh, Spanish citizen, but they, it's not automatically. You need to uh, prove uh, one year of legal residence in Spain after the marriage. So it's still naturalization to the extent that some legal residence is uh, required apart from the marriage. And the refugees are asked, uh, are required to, to have lived there legally for five years. So basically, on top of that, most of the people that can enjoy the privileged regime of the two years of residence have double uh, nationality or double citizenship uh, uh, treaties with their country, with Spain, basically the Latin Americans. So that huge reduce the cost of naturalization for this group that makes more, almost half of the immigrant population living in Spain. So actually when we are ranking these international rankings of how tough the citizenship regime is, we are usually like very harsh because everybody looks at the 10 years residence requirement, but actually more than half of the population or half the, of the immigrant population uh, don't care about that rule because they have an exceptional regime that uh, it's very large in terms of the number affected by it. So what I do here, here you have kind of, so looking at the cross effects of the immigration regime and the citizenship regime. So we have here the soft soft because Portuguese are required only two years because they were all territories from the Spanish point of view. Well, for good in this case at least, <laughs> this is not. Yeah, so uh, this is something very ironic that uh, the Spanish citizenship regime, I forgot to say that, has not been reformed at all, pretty much since the late uh, uh, 19th century when it was written for the first time. So there were some, mm, some changes, but uh, these naturalization rules uh, has been enforced since uh, mid, uh, I think 1954. And even considering the huge revolution that we had in the migration dynamics, the, the whole system was thought for a country that was sending migrants away. And the main goal was to assure that our citizens didn't lose the Spanish citizenship when they were uh, abroad. So we are still dealing with these huge inflows of immigration with that regime. So there are many unexpected results that came from that. And actually, something which is quite surprising to some extent is that this has not been in the debate at all. It's not in the political debate at all. And there is a huge resistance to actually discuss about it, which probably is not that bad considering the situation right now. But here we will have in the other stream, opposite to the Portuguese, what I call the non-privileged people. There are basically Asians, with the exception of Philippines, that are uh, required only two years. The Moroccans, because I mean all Africans, but the Mor with the exception of Guinea Equatorial. But uh, again, so just little, but the bulk of these people are African and Asian people. Then we have the privileged group, which is basically Latin Americans, plus the Portuguese and the Philippines. Okay. Sorry? Yeah, exactly. That's not here. No, they are not mentioned. No. We are, you know how we are in that sense. So. We couldn't do it better, apparently. And then we have the EU people that are applied, the, the, the tough citizenship regime applied to them, but 
On the other hand, they can circulate freely, so they don't have a very harsh immigration regime. So this is the percentage that these different groups represent over the total population in 2007, which is the time for which I have the data. So now has changed a bit. And uh, so you see that more or less the size of the, these three groups is relatively similar. This is not the, the percentage, the, yeah, the percentage they represent over the total population. And here you have the percentage of each group that had already naturalized by the time of the survey that we will use that was from 2007. Yeah? Of the entire group or of all those who fill the percentage requirements? Of the entire group. This is over the population. Because that is a problem. We don't have a clear number about the eligible people. Because the, in Spain, most of the statistics never ask about the date of arrival. Or you don't know from you know your current legal status, but you don't know for how long that person has been in that status. So you actually cannot measure whether. So basically, immigration and citizenship law substantially alter the set of incentives that people have to apply for naturalization, and uh, that should imply different situation for different groups. So I'm going to look at this to look at the probability of acquiring the Spanish nationality through residence for different groups in Spain using the National Immigration Survey for 2007. But part of it is that I'm missing the huge increase in the number of naturalization that have take, have, has taken place during the crisis. But at least we will have an idea of how the selection process was right before the crisis. And whenever we get new data, we will be able to compare to see to what extent actually this huge increase in the number of applications has been probably accompanied by tougher implementation of the same rules, because rules have not changed, at least at the legal level, but the, uh, it seems to be that there is a 40% rejection rate now, and before was almost nothing. But it's not clear, because they don't give the numbers of application by year, you only know the number of acquisition. So, we only have people that are older than 16 here, so, and we have eliminated people that uh, got citizenship because of the parents or because of uh, uh, they were born in Spain or any other procedure that is not the one that implies as a requirement some, type, some time residing in the country. So people who married a Spaniard are also here because they are required one year of residence. So, I think I'm a bit late, right? Sorry, any legal status means uh, they need to have a legal status? Not really. So, now I'm going to explain that. So basically, because we don't know when they became regular, we know when they got to Spain, when they entered Spain for the last time. But we don't have complete legal trajectories. So we are looking at time of residence in the country, but we cannot look at time of residence being eligible or being legal. Okay? So we have total time of residence. That is the time we are looking at. So we are going to look at how long it takes for someone to get the Spanish nationality after a year of coming to Spain. Obviously, that is going to delay the moment they got it, because many of them were there irregularly for two years. So actually, time in terms of requirements for naturalization didn't start counting for them until some time after. But we cannot distinguish who was legal at entry and who was not. 
So we cannot separate according to that. Is that clear? So the eligibility depends on the legal, the the legal time of residence, not time of residence. So it's 10 years of legal and continuous residence or two years of legal and continuous residence. So they check that when you apply, but in the survey we don't know, we don't have the complete legal trajectory. So we only know whether they were legal or illegal at the moment of the survey and a bit backwards, but not completely. So they register for the Padron municipal register? That is not to be legal. It's not to be. I mean, no. that is not to be regular in administrative uh, terms for the immigration law. We have a quite particular system in that regard. So basically, the good thing here is that we have the date of the citizen, uh, citizenship acquisition. We have also that those dates uh, for the family members. We also can reconstruct the, the migration process of the family group. We have uh, quite some dated information about some integ integration indicators. Not perfect, but we know how the person was at the time of arrival and at some points after. So sometimes we can know whether they had, uh, for instance, enrolled in some sort of education in Spain before acquiring the citizenship. So because we wanted to look at to the standard is possible to the causal impact of some factors on the probability of becoming a citizen, uh, we were using only the information that allowed us to be sure that that particular characteristic of the individual was already observed before he became or she became a citizen. In cases where, where we couldn't, for instance, with language, language was only evaluated and measured at the time of the survey, we didn't use that information here because that could be a consequence of uh, citizenship acquisition rather than, a, rather than a factor explaining that. So this are more or less the, the number of controls or variables that we are looking at. Basically, we expect that the privileged group naturalized more and quicker than the other two groups, basically for, because uh, they are required a longer time of residence, so it would be very strange to find a different thing. But then what we are interested in looking at is to what extent the determinants of naturalization varies across the different immigration citizenship regimes uh, groups. So we are going to look in parallel to all people together and then to the privileged group, to the non-privileged group, to the EU 27 groups. Basically, well, I'm going to summarize that because I think it's better, I mean, in the paper, it's better explained in terms of uh, theoretically why we expected different effects for different groups. In some cases, it's very clear. In other cases, we didn't even have an idea of how that potential factor would work. For instance, in, in terms of, I don't know, the, yeah, I can give an example. For instance, uh, with this idea that naturalization may come in couples, there are different situations, even for, according to the citizenship regime. For instance, the Latin Americans can apply themselves for citizenship after two years of residence. After mm, your partner gets citizenship, you need still to prove one year of legal residence. After he became a resident, a, a citizen, and you, you were married, of course. The difference is very small between two years and one year. So the additional incentive to use marriage with a naturalized or with a native-born uh, uh, native Spaniard to, to get citizenship 
is not that strong for the Latin Americans. On the other hand, for the non-privileged group, this makes a huge difference. So instead of waiting for 10 years of legal residence in one year of legal residence after marrying, you could get citizenship. So it is therefore likely that these different factors work differently or have different impact for different groups. So I'm gonna, here you have the survival function. Actually what you see here is what we expected. So we, here we are only looking at the differences between the three groups we have defined. And you see like after 10 years of residence in Spain, legal or illegal because we don't have the information, more than 30% of the privileged group, let's say Latin Americans uh, mostly, have already acquired the Spanish citizenship. But after 10 years, only, I mean, even less than 10% of the EU people, for instance, had. Obviously, 10 years is the very first moment when these two groups could apply for. So it's a bit demanding, but some of them could have married a Spaniard person, and then in a year they could have. So most of those who are here are through marriage. After that, could be a mixture of both procedures. So this is not very surprising, but when we put all the migrants together and we control for all the things that I was mentioning before, the family structure, the proportion of co-nationals that have already obtained citizenship in Spain, education, whether they are owners of a house in Spain, uh, for how long they have been in Spain, how many kids they have here and abroad, I don't know, some other variables we will go through, still, the EU people are much less likely to obtain the Spanish citizenship and the Latin Americans are still marginally more likely. So the composition effect doesn't explain completely uh, the differences and uh, there is some sort of a confirmation that uh, even beyond the characteristic of the individuals to be placed in these different regimes affect their possibility to become a citizen. So here well, this is a time that with time everything increased for everybody, but especially for the non-privileged group, the increase is higher and takes a bit longer. Here we look at dual citizenship and uh, the proportion of uh, co-national in, in Spain that I had already naturalized to see whether there is this diffusion effect, especially for the non-privileged group and those who didn't have the access to dual citizenship, the potential symbolic and social cost of becoming a citizen of Spain is much higher than for the other. And here we see we don't find any effect of the dual citizenship factor, but uh, we, we see clearly that uh, having a higher proportion of co-nationals around you that have already become citizens somehow encourage you to or increase your probability to become a citizen yourself. Here we were looking for the towards 10 better indicators of structural integration in the country are, um, predicts higher probability of becoming a citizen, which is much of which is, uh, what is actually debated in the, at the policy level many times. And our expectation was that uh, this could work maybe for the non-privileged group, because actually they are, uh, the regime is much more demanding with them. But with the Latin Americans, if it's only after two years, I mean, you wouldn't need to be very quick in becoming integrated in, man, in many dimensions to actually be able to, to, or unless that there is some sort of identificational 
dimension that correlates with the structural integration and these people were applying more for citizenship. But here we see that education doesn't make any difference. Well, when we look at all, it seems it's important, but when we separate the groups, we realize that the, actually education only matters for the non-privileged. So are the more educated, the more likely to actually become Spaniards. Then when we look at the type of situation they had in the, in the labor market, at arrival, basically, to make sure that this was before applying for naturalization, nothing matters. Uh, well, this is whether they were pioneers or not in their migration, and those who were not pioneers, I mean, the Latin American are less likely as well. Here, studying in Spain, again, doesn't matter. The number of different municipalities where you have lived uh, during the time in Spain doesn't matter. If you are a host, uh, house owner in Spain before getting citizenship, it seems to matter, but only for the privileged group, which is a bit unexpected. I mean, in general, we would expect to these structural indicators to be more uh, better predictors of the acquisition for the non-privileged group than for the privileged group. Here, the reason for migration, we see it's not actually very much important. Only those who came for family reasons aim on the EU people. And this is very much lead, led by the Portuguese that are there. Because for a reason that I'm still trying to, so I'm thinking of running separate analysis because the sample is so, so for the Portuguese almost 500. Because actually it's through marriage, most of the cases that they have acquired cities. So they are very likely to marry Spaniards. And this is usually the most common procedure to, for them to acquire. So it's not very clear, but it's something very much related to the Portuguese effect. And here, this is the, well, the naturalization coming couples. This is quite important, I think. So when you marry, you were single when you came to Spain and you married. So usually we only look at the effect of marital status, but we don't look at the characteristic of the partner. Here you see that when you marry another migrant, your probability of becoming a citizen clearly declines. But if you marry a Spanish-born person, these mixed marriages that many times are expected to be related to marriage of convenience, to well, in a strategic behavior to acquire the citizenship and get rid of all the immigration regime, uh, somehow it affects for the Latin Americans that anyhow has relatively have relatively easy possibilities to apply for citizenship. They only have to fulfill the two years. However, that is not important for the other two. So it seems in many cases that people don't manage many cases to marry, or whenever you marry a Spaniard, your legal status becomes somehow quite protected, even if you don't become a citizen through your partner. So this somehow is not working, but it's a bit weird. And then it is definitely the naturalization of your immigrant partner, which really push you. So here it seems like there are some families where there is no this strategic behavior that Blondrat was suggesting as a possibility that, well, you apply for, but I don't, because in this way the kids, and apparently in Spain that is not that much the case, and the explanation is quite simple, I guess, because once you, most of the partners, the, most of the immigrant couples arrive to Spain in very similar dates. So, whenever one fulfills the requirements, the other also. And they increase their possibility, someone gets it, if they both apply. 
because the, the procedure takes so long that if you wait and the, you, you were running your bed and the, you didn't get it, then you have to start all over and the whole family becomes somehow weaker in their legal status in the country. So, but for them, like they, they don't, I mean actually, they apply for through residence, not through marriage. So this effect is not that important. So basically the results are not too clear in the sense that, I mean, there are clear differences across the, the groups. But on the other hand, mm, there is not a clear effect of the uh, integration indicators. There is some sort of clear tendency to show more selectivity among the non-privileged group, those who have more difficulties to, to get citizenship, but against uh, still the results are not that clear. So from the result, I would say that the Spanish system so far has not actually selected their new citizens in a very strict way, because they are not the more educated, they are not the one that have a better situation in the labor market. They don't think only with the house thing, but the house thing considering the period we have been going through and the craziness of buying a house, I mean, they just adapted. They did the same crazy stuff we did, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they were more integrated. So because in many cases they have been, I mean, I don't know, but uh, there are many, many cases of uh, this fraud that they were offered like very low credit and uh, then they couldn't pay for the house. So that doesn't mean they have paid for the house, but most of them were still paying for the house. So there is definitely some family naturalization strategies, but not the one that uh, were suggested, and definitely not a clear evidence of marrying a native as a strategy to get naturalization, which is important to some extent, and I'm writing a paper on that particular topic separately with the Portuguese as well. So one of the limitations of the paper is clearly that we don't have uh, subjective indicators of integration. So we don't have any kind of identification or measurement or anything. So it could be, and that is something that we are not controlling for here, that people that feel more attached to the country are actually the one that gets that somehow. But so far, we cannot test that. And also, the other problem is that here we can only look at the date of acquisition, but we are not looking at application, which is actually the moment where people select themselves. So the acquisition is a mixture of both things. But this is the best we could do, so that's it. Thank you.